Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by my friend Kari Onestead, the Director of Advancement for the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. Kari, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Steve. I was excited to read an article early in the year uh, that um, talking to one of the local newspapers um, about some work and outreach you've been doing on impacts of the tax changes on the charitable world, and particularly about donations and tax deductibility of donations. So um, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about your outreach. I want to maybe actually set the table for just a second before we do that, that um, I'll link in the show notes to a uh, past episode of the podcast where we talk about what these tax law changes that happened earlier are. But the short of it is um, with an increase in the standard deduction, there's potentially many, many, many fewer people that will actually itemize deductions and then potentially fewer people that will see a benefit from a charitable gift on their taxes. So there were some questions about what would this look like in the charitable sector once it's been fully rolled out. And here we are now into 2019. We're, we're done with year-end giving. Um, you're starting to chat with your members and others about the impact. Um, what did you talk with the Star Tribune about? What are you kind of seeing early on? Yeah, so this was obviously really big news when uh, the tax and jobs cut tax sorry, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed back in November of 2017. Uh, and MCN's public policy team was keeping a close eye and kind of watching national sources that were predicting big things to happen. So we were um, polling membership throughout 2018 to keep our finger on the pulse of what our members were seeing and hearing. So we got a sense from what folks were experiencing kind of in real time, as well as um, a brief little survey we did early in January. So through our workshops and conferences and, and the survey, we were pleased to find, and I think other kind of national groups have found these early results to be true as well, that kind of the big shortfalls in individual giving didn't bear out this year. That kind of on average, uh, less than 10% of groups experienced significant decreases in individual giving, which we had uh, marked as a change, a 5% or more change in what they had been able to raise last year. So uh, while that's good news for now, that's not necessarily predictive of future behavior. And that ends up being kind of the age-old question of, of what motivates human action and behavior. Uh, and so we'll kind of continue to watch this as folks who are making that change, sh shifting from who used to itemize to non-itemizing now, and they go through a full tax cycle and kind of live those changes themselves, how that may impact future behavior. But that is yet to be seen, but good news for Minnesota's nonprofits, at least for now. And Minnesota being an indicator of what may be happening in other places, but certainly um, we've, we've been a pretty generous state in the past, and I think that we can look towards the reasons that people give uh, more than perhaps other places because, you know, the federal giving uh, laws have been the same in all these other states for a very long period of time, and we've still done better here than many other states do. So we may see some differences as more information rolls out in other places, but I think it's interesting to see that right away, I think, I think the, the anecdotal stuff, and it's going to take some study, um, is really indicating things that people in the development field have been saying for a very long time, that people are not giving just to get a tax deduction. It's helpful and it should be there and it is the right thing to do. But it is not a primary motivator as what a lot of us have been saying. And now we kind of get it put to the test a little bit. Um, so when, when you talk about just a very few percentage are seeing a decline, do you have any sense of you know, how many organizations might have seen a decline in prior years you know, without any changes in tax law? Because sometimes it's a waxing and waning of where donors' passions are going. Right. 
And anyone who has ever done nonprofit fundraising in any capacity knows that uh, you can do all of the careful planning and segmenting and implementation of your work and try your, your hardest, and you still have zero to no control over what those end results end up being. Uh, and so certainly um, that kind of swing of changes, I think, probably isn't outside of the norm. Um, and yet it's 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 encouraging to know that you know, 90% of folks saw at least maintained giving this year um, with even some indicating large increases. So some of folks had said that that was potentially a result around bundling. So that's been kind of the latest advice from financial planners, which could mark a change in individual giving and be one reason why we saw such increases in in, um, some groups this last year. So Um, switching from itemizing to non-itemizing kind of as a a future practice now um, where you would bundle your gifts in one year and itemize that that year uh, and then kind of move to non-itemizing, taking the standard deduction in a following year. So nonprofits are potentially going to have to figure out how to navigate that and build that into their planning as well. Right. And this is something that was addressed in that prior podcast I mentioned. So for in-depth, detailed information about that, um, we'll have a link in the show notes. But the short of it being that there may be people that have been advised, and I certainly have advised some clients about this, to say, if the tax deduction is important to you and it's part of your giving plan and why you give, then looking at can you give more in a single year um, and then think about you take a year or two, maybe three. It depends on the individual donor off from your charitable giving. So you're bundling those future years into one and that extra large giving gets you over the threshold where suddenly tax deductibility matters again because that standard deduction doesn't go for forever. It's, you know, it's an, it's a change from what it used to be but it doesn't cover everybody all the time. So I think that that's an interesting idea of will we see people taking a year or two off in the in future years. But I, I'm personally not seeing that this is what's happened yet. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we didn't see people planning for bundling after they do their 2018 taxes and go, oh, I didn't see the benefit that I used to see because I didn't do you know, those kinds of things. And therefore, I do want to think about whether that's important to me to you know, maybe bundle some gifts. We talked with people about it, but I don't think that there was a lot of uptake. We won't know that for a while is my guess. Is, do you know that there's any indi- early indication that that's actually happened or it's just kind of one of those things we need to watch? There is a handful of groups. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a, a widely shared experience with groups, um, but in kind of anecdotal feedback through the little survey we conducted and then as well as at workshops, folks were saying, particularly at the end of 2017, um, their financial planners did give them that advice. Hmm. And so some groups did get kind of double the donation that year and then um, had a kind of restrict, time restrict to be able to recognize in the future year. Well, it's interesting to know that that's already maybe part of the landscape and we just need more time to see this. But I I do think that part of um, what also may be spiking in some of these areas is shifts in giving priority based on how the world has changed. And um, as more uh, political activities are happening, we are certainly seeing gifts that were never charitably deductible in the first place, gifts to uh, 501c4 organizations that um, didn't have the ability to recognize a tax deductible gift anyway. And people are are giving because it matters to them, that it's important to them. So I think that that we might be seeing some of those charities that are engaged in work that really addresses or remediated immediate problems that are happening in 2018 spiking, despite the fact that maybe there's not a tax deductible 
piece to it. Um, any idea about breaking down over sector about things like in, engaging in civil action or organizations that might be helping immigrants and refugees who have been hit particularly hard? Any Anything like that yet? Right. And that's such a great point, Steve, that you make around. It's to the earlier point around what to what degree is tax deductibility uh, an incentive or motivation for for charitable giving, and you see that also with kind of the rise in online giving intermediaries. So yeah. um, things like to, uh, funding campaigns for health expenses on GoFundMe directly to individuals would not be a charitably deductible gift, and yet folks are giving because they want to see stronger communities and and um, organizations succeeding in charitable work and, and thriving families. And so um, I think that definitely that spirit remains. Minnesota continues to be one of the stronger uh, leaders in the nation for charitable giving, ranked number three, according to a la- our most recent study back in 2018. Uh, but definitely you see kind of strong support for, for causes regardless of that charitable deduction status. So in the past, many charities uh, have sort of prominently featured the message, you know, your gift fully tax deductible to the extent of the law, you know, depending about whether or not you had received any value for um, your contribution, all those kinds of qualifiers. But but that language was on letters that we sent and websites that had donation buttons and all that stuff. Um, so it's still there because it's still deductible to the extent of the law. The law has just changed. So I, is there anybody talking about that messaging around that on places so that people don't feel like, well, wait a minute, you said it was tax deductible, but you know, now I'm under this limit and it doesn't matter. And you know, is that confusing to a donor? How do we help donors navigate that? Right. Oh, that, and that's been one of our most kind of frequently asked questions, particularly right around uh, the time of the tax law change. So we've we've done a lot to kind of get the communication out and and notice to our members that that language that you would include at the end of a tax receipt for a charitable gift does not have to change. Uh, the gift is still entirely tax deductible, um, and it's really up to the donor to decide whether they um, are going to itemize or not itemize that they would pursue the deduction of that charitable gift. But a practice that some fundraisers have um, changed, particularly if they have strong major gifts programs, is to start being more proactive in conversations around planned giving and mm-hmm. building relationships with financial advisors. And so talking and thinking through um, particularly the use of donor-advised funds and bundling like we talked about earlier. So um, those major gifts officers starting to be kind of more proactive in, in uh, facilitating conversations around planned giving and um, kind of strategy, the strategy of uh, donor's philanthropy. Which doesn't necessarily change the disclaimer any. It's just more when you know more about that donor and you can address their particular circumstance better. Because again, many of our donors that I talk to, this is just not on the list of things they're concerned about. They get a receipt and that's fine and that's good. But um, they, they want to know the program impacts in the community. They want to know how um, work is, is uh, funneling or changing because they've been involved as a volunteer or whatever. I don't hear people very often – um, say, you know, I want to make a strategic gift because of my tax position. It happens. And again, in those major donor categories in particular, and there's certainly things to do, but none of that changes the language we use. I don't know that we're going to see a lot of confusion. I'm a little uh, um, on guard for it in case it does come up because in the people that I'm working with, we haven't changed anything because the language is still technically correct. 
One of the things that was interesting in the prior interview was around the number of people that were eligible to take a tax deduction in the, under the old law that you had to be itemizing in the first place. And the number of people that were itemizing in, in prior laws wasn't actually half the population then. It was it was less than that to begin with because you either had to have something like a home mortgage or some other big monster thing to overcome that level. Um, um, and a lot of people you know, maybe had already paid off their house and therefore didn't have that kind of thing to offset it. But it's interesting that there were a lot of people that were giving then that this change doesn't make any impact to. If you were tithing to your church in the first place, this doesn't matter to them. But I do think that that language change that charities might use could be important. And I'm not sure I'm hearing much out there from people to the, the regular everyday donor about the the change in law. It's certainly there if you're looking for it. But are you hearing more about this or is it really kind of re restrained to those major donor categories where they have to have that talk? Yeah, I think the questions have really come from the nonprofit organizations wanting to ensure that they are in compliance with whatever the new law is. And so um, it may not have even been on the donor's radar yet, uh, but those those good, hardworking nonprofit organizations who want to make sure we're including the right um, language so that we're in compliance with the IRS and Minnesota State Attorney General, um, but definitely. So then it's 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 there's kind of the the compliance aspect, and then there's the opportunity or, or practice end of it. So I think that's really where you start to see potential practice shifts for nonprofit organizations working with those major donors that you don't have to change that tax language, but what you might put at the end of a letter is kind of planting a seed of an idea. So I've seen folks do this with um, employee matching programs too. So mm, did sure. you know that your employer may match your gift? Check it out. Um, so we've encouraged folks to do similar messaging, particularly around the Minnesota's charitable deduction. So Minnesota is one of two states, we are alongside Colorado, that offers a charitable deduction for any gift, regardless of whether you itemize or don't. Um, and our public policy team has been leading great efforts to remove a floor and a ceiling that exists around that. Um, so making sure that kind of the entire gift could be deductible on your state taxes. And then we're also working in partnership with some groups um, on a national level to introduce a universal federal deduction. So more on that, um, but exciting kind of uh, news unfolding in the policy world. Well, that, that's a really good point to take up right now, I think, is this idea of um, this charitable giving should um, have some uh, benefit to it for the donors, regardless of all these other changes of what's an itemized deduction level, what's not, and all the rest of it. It really ought to be independent of that because of the public good that is being provided by these charities in the first place. So it's a great thing to say this may not be having a dramatic impact on donors out there right now. Um, but just because of what is good and right and makes sense in the world, we really ought to be looking at federal level deductions and other states and whatnot being independent of how much money you made and does it qualify for some standardized or whatever. So this is something that you and, and I assume some colleague organizations across the country have been you know, talking about since before this 2018 change. Right. Yeah. So uh, the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits has a whole public policy team. Uh, and Taylor Putz is our public policy advocate who's been leading work on the state level in Minnesota and then working in close partnership with groups like the Minnesota Council on Foundations and the Association of Fundraising Professionals, um, some great groups that have kind of the shared goal and interest in 
and seeing a strong um, positive climate for charitable giving and nonprofit organizations having the resources they need to achieve their charitable goals. So uh, it's exciting to to watch that work unfold. And I think there's going to be some great uh, things happening in this next legislative session. All right. And it may encourage a few more people to become donors. And I think that that's just all to the good for many, many reasons, not just because the charities need the extra help, but because people that are participating in their communities that way should have some recognition recognition from their government partners. Like, you know, we're doing stuff that you're not doing. And we really right. should have some help here in getting those bills paid. So let's recognize that that's an actual real part of it. It may not be the primary driver of a decision. But um, while it's not primary, I think every Everything that you can add to uh, a retinue of reasons why you can support charities is certainly helpful. And you mentioned the idea of kind of um, adding some tag on language about did you, you know employer matching programs, for example, or this idea out there that uh, uh, giving a, a gift of stock or um, um, value of life that, that may have appreciated before it ever comes into your possession um, is is independent of the idea of the um, um, tax deductibility based on a standard deduction because you're not going to recognize that income in the first place and the social security impact, all those things that you know check with your tax advisor neither. Kari nor I are tax attorneys, so we want to make sure to be clear like we're not um, – every individual is going to have different reasons. But whatever those are, if we can put those seeds out there of this is another reason to think about giving, certainly the impact is the big one. Your participation as a, as a person in your community is a big one. These are things that are important to people. But ought to be you know, that the government recognizes that role in addition to those things. I think that's – Fair and important. So um, before we leave that topic, uh, I, you, we've mentioned your public policy team here a couple of times. There's some, I assume, national partners that are talking about this locally. Um, how do you advise people to kind of start thinking about being engaged in the public policy part of the conversation before we get back into just the giving part? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so there's ways of all the way from staying informed. Uh, they, Our public policy team has regular communications and you can subscribe to the nonprofit advocate at MCN's website, um, all the way to trainings on learning more about lobbying and advocacy, kind of the do's and don'ts and um, the freedoms that nonprofit organizations can have, uh, all the way to kind of deep end involvement and meeting with legislatures. So uh, check out our website for more information on ways to get involved. All right. So keeping that part of the conversation alive, I think, is important for any charity. Think about how you should be engaged in that. But also then talking to your donors is a, a really an important part of this. So um, I think the messaging around why people give is, you know, there's no one answer for any particular nonprofit or mission. Um, I often kind of boil it down when, when I was uh, teaching a course on, on fundraising and development that there's ethos past those logos so that you really want to talk about the ethical alignment of your mission work, the um, logical, I can show you that we have an impact thing. But there's that pathos. What's the feeling? about this. And I think that has such an impact on people's decision more than that logical, well, I'll, I'll save a little bit of money on taxes or I'll, you know, whatever it might be, that they're going to feel that connection more. And does the tax deductibility language kind of get in the way? I see it downplayed, you know, compared to here's what your, your gift does for these people. You know, you make a difference in this person's life. Language it tends to be much higher up there than here's your um, even your your personal financial you know tax benefit thing, but or the idea of here's the the kind of hold cold hard numbers of impact. It tends to be a lot more story focused. Right. 
Oh, completely. And even I think it's helpful to even draw a difference between a tax receipt and a thank you letter. So Mm. so often we'll get questions from members, kind of what do we legally have to provide and when, and then what's best practice in terms of kind of stewardship and and maintaining the relationship of donors. And so um, some groups blend those. They they include the tax receipt language at the end of a thank you letter, and some groups have those as two completely separate communications. Um, I give to my college alma mater and will receive kind of a very um, legal-like document at the end of every calendar year summarizing my charitable giving. And that's just kind of a document that I throw in a a folder that says taxes for this year, Mm -hmm. uh, but then have uh, completely different separate pieces that kind of articulate, as you're describing, Steve, that ethos, that that emotional um, parts that that connect me, continue to connect me to the mission and, and inspire me to give. And so not to universalize my experience, but I as a donor, for one, um, kind of almost expect that that tax language would almost be separate and kind of a thing I don't think twice about, but I'm really inspired and moved by the other communication piece. I, I think to broaden the conversation for a moment just about the reasons people give, it, mm-hmm. it's a really great idea to talk about that first thank you just being that um, very heartfelt, emotional, we're in this together kind of message I think is a great idea without asking for any more money, mm-hmm. without asking them to do you know anything that costs anything and maybe without that tax piece. And I think with some of the clients I work with, Largely because our hope is that you're going to give more than once during a year. And we're going to need to send you a um, compiled statement of your gifts so that we know that we have for sure said you've given, you know, maybe every month or, you know, maybe during a spring appeal and a a year-end giving campaign or a Giving Tuesday thing or whatever. But it's a good idea to do a tax receipt at the end of all of that thing that aggregates all the stuff um, so that people know, hey, you've given a few times and it's really important that we recognize that so that you're not tracking down three different letters that might be in that folder or maybe one of them didn't get in that folder. So that's a great tactic for recognizing the overall commitment. But that first connection to people being just that heartfelt thank you I think is is fantastic. Uh, you – Talk to um, – well, I guess in your own practice here, but I assume also talking to members about what they're doing. You're hearing that more or is it not something that is as universal? Yeah, I think it's it's hard as fundraisers to to say maybe thank you without that additional ask, whether <laughs> it be monetary or, or some other call to engagement. Uh, but I have seen groups increasingly – we see the emergence and popularity of storytelling, kind mm-hmm. of how you can introduce um, the impact of – that gift um, through the lens of a particular person's story who's accessed services or is involved in your community in some way, um, that that can be a really compelling and, and wonderful way that, that donors immediately kind of feel that emotional connection to the work through a real-life person uh, with kind of pictures and um yeah, so definitely seeing groups do that more and more. I think the challenge and opportunity is is how do you um, leverage what works within a template, but then also know that other folks may be using that approach as well. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you use the strengths of that, but then still find a way to differentiate yourself and tell your unique story and um, in a way that that doesn't. Um, be the same thing that a donor has been hearing from other organizations as well. Well, I appreciate you differentiating the idea of an ask of money being different from an ask for engagement in some other way. And that's important that a a thank you might well be, um, you know, we're still sharing information with people uh, through these social media channels. Follow us here. If you're not on our newsletter list, we'd love to add you. Here's another way to stay engaged. 
Um, those kinds of call to actions in a thank you, um, different from would you please consider a subsequent gift thing right away. And I do think it's important to talk to your donors about how they can most importantly impact you. Now, how we subtly make that distinction of if tax deductibility or other kinds of financial planning benefits are important to you, here's some more information without kind of drowning the average ordinary person who's just not going to be at that level. They're not going to create a donor-advised fund. They're not worried about gifts of stock. Those are not going to be tools. And I'm, I'm always a little sensitive to how do we gate the right people to the right mm -hmm. messaging and give them, you know, we do know more about this. We can talk with you if this is important to you without kind of overwhelming you know, people where it's not appropriate. That's a tricky one, I think. Do you mm -hmm. um, have thoughts or conversations with people about that? Yeah, that's a great point. And I've heard some folks who kind of specialize in that major gifts level um, encouraging nonprofit organizations to look as you're trying to gauge and plan for who might be making that shift and who might be that right segmented of audience to have that conversation. Uh, folks who have been giving to your organization at the one to $5,000 a year level. Um, so that's, you know, not an exact science, but at mm -hmm. least a starting point that um, as you're kind of planning through who you might be targeting communications and what you want to say, that that's the group to look at really when you're inviting that broader conversation around how it fits into broader um, philanthropy strategy. But other groups, either above that, knowing that that's already probably a part of their planning and, and um, kind of language, and groups maybe below that, that that isn't as helpful or relevant. Yeah. I mean, when I've talked with folks that have done a little bit more major giving work, they're always careful to use the, the language. You know, you're, you're leaving money on the table. If you haven't um, encouraged them to come to a higher level, I just find that one tough to go um, you know, if you came in at a hundred bucks, um, maybe it's because that was just the easiest thing to do because the form had a hundred dollar checkbox on it, and you didn't want to think about, am I ready to do a thousand? Even though I'm capable of doing a thousand, or uh, it's just hard to know. Are they coming in a little bit lower just because they're not so engaged yet, or is that a big gift for them? And we don't want to, you know, come to somebody who just made a large gift and go, wow, that was great. Now can you triple it? And and feel like, well, geez, if you you know, if my gift wasn't all that big, you know, why? Why would I be engaged? Finding that level of financial impact, um, you know, is is a hard um, part of the work that we do. I think so. Challenging for everyone, I would guess. Mm -hmm. So, how do we then, you know, kind of think moving forward about what data should we be trying to gather or look at or think about in terms of does this have more of an impact in the future? And how do we know that that impact was about a tax deductible change versus, you know, that the giving priority of that particular donor just shifted as uh, um, their priorities maybe have, have changed, that kind of thing. This is, I think, going to be harder moving into 2019, 2020, as you point out, as some people may have um, bundled a gift and if they didn't tell you ahead of time that that was the intention, that this is a multi-year gift, that they just sort of made one and then they're planning on taking a year or two off and coming back again, but maybe you didn't have that information ahead of time. You're like, well, we just lost them. They didn't come back again. And um, you know, certainly, of course, you'd, you'd hope to be in great conversation with every donor about every intention, but that's just not reasonable for most charities. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there are two ways to approach it. Uh, one way is by zooming in and the other way is by zooming out. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is zooming in is really diving into the details and ensuring you've got a strong CRM or some sort of database where you're tracking um, kind of the gifts and information in real time. So if you have a strong 
data person and shout out to all those amazing uh, nonprofit <laughs> data gift people um, who's able to kind of keep an eye on what's happening on those numbers and kind of ch quarterly check-ins perhaps to see what trends are we experiencing. And then that zoomed out perspective as well. So on a higher level, what are the other trends potentially that could be impacting um, the donors to your organization, your donor, um, your strategies that you're implementing as a nonprofit fundraiser so that you're not just focusing on one potential variable being the, the changes in tax law, but um, other things that are happening in the environment. So I know some groups at times like this have done um, focus groups or surveys of, mm. of donors or even using their board in creative ways to say um, what's inspiring you to give, how could these changes be impacting you? So kind of mobilizing a close group of friends and trusted leaders uh, involved in your work and just asking them. Well, I think, you know, sometimes the obvious escapes me. So that's a really good one. Maybe we should just be asking people as directly as we can. Certainly of folks that um, are, are making gifts where you're thinking, well, you know, that's a generous gift. They presumably, you know, have some resources at their disposal. Maybe this impacts them more than somebody who is either choosing or is only, you know, feeling able to give a relatively small amount, in which case, you know, having the information available on a website or whatever, if people are kicking around looking for it, is great. And I think we've struggled with this with ideas like planned giving and legacy giving for a long time of when do you start that conversation with a donor too? Because, you know, there are certainly examples of people that that are um, giving, you know, um, what what might be in the, in the context of an organization a relatively uh, more modest gift that have the ability to do a bigger legacy gift and they're making those decisions. But how do we gate them if we're using just the dollar amount as that, that thing? So certainly I've seen lots of charities where they have on their pages, you know, here's how we'd like to learn more about what is important to you and your future plans for how you might be able to support us. Because if we're just making an assumption on the fact that you gave $100 a year for every year for 15 years, um, that $100 is your total gift rather than, well, you know, in my legacy planning, I can do something substantially more than that. It's just that right now, this is what I choose to do. Those are hard guesses to make from only that. So asking, asking mm -hmm. them. Um, but, you know, to your point about the data crunching, most organizations are, are pretty um, resource starved for people to just look through lists and try to figure out who to talk to and, and all the rest of it. So looking at a larger tool like a survey might help surface some of those things. Right. And I'll put a quick plug in that the Minnesota Plan Giving Council is a group here that does a lot of great resources uh, and is hosting a conversation in March kind of on the same topic is mm -hmm. what are the changes that we think might happen and what are some best practices that nonprofits uh, should be thinking about or considering. And our executive director, John Pratt, will be speaking in that. So another great resource for uh, folks who are looking to take a deeper dive into um, these topics that we're bringing up. So other resources, we, um, I mentioned uh, ahead of us recording today that uh, MNR Labs uh, did a, a quick hot take. Uh, not a lot of scientific data available for any of us yet. We're still kind of doing that very informal level of data gathering. But um, I mean, they found some good, bad, and meh, I think was their um, um, the, the overall. And I can put a link in the show notes for, for their piece too. Um, but other people that you recommend uh, following for kind of keeping an eye on what this trend uh, may or may not see in impacts? Yeah, that's a great question. 
obviously in Minnesota, GiveMN is um, a capacity builder, particularly around individual giving and leads our uh, state's biggest giving holiday on Give to the Max Day. And so, you know, they've been definitely keeping a close eye on trends that are unfolding and kind of ideas for folks' strategies to try. Uh, the Council of Nonprofits organizes a monthly fundraising networking lunch, mm. uh, and our one, our next one will actually be on um, this Wednesday, February 6th, I'm talking about fundraising and advocacy and kind of ways that um, you can build relationships with your donors and mobilize around particular issues that interest you. And so this could be kind of in that same um, topic of how do you keep close to the people uh, who are inspired by your work and and ensure that that commitment uh, to give charitably to your organization continues. Um, definitely the Association of Fundraising Professionals is both a state and national level group uh, that is an aggregator of information and trends. Um, and there's other places like the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, which takes data from some of the largest CRMs that are cloud-based and is able to mm. analyze information in real time and see trends uh, that their clients are um, seeing as they're processing gifts and using the software to track and acknowledge their own individual giving. So uh, things like that. That, I, did, I was not aware of that last one. That's a, the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, you Fundraising said? Fundraising Effectiveness Project, yes. So that's really interesting because I think one of the, the challenges around understanding which of our um, supporters really have concerns or thoughts about uh, the tax deductibility question or not, many of them may not be using um, uh, electronic donations. So we've got to make sure that you're um, integrating your paper-based donations, checks or um, stuff that might come in from a uh, donor-advised fund or, or a bank transfer or something into that same database where all the electronic process stuff, credit cards, debit cards, all that happens so that we're um, looking at, at the full range of donors. And I, I'm a little concerned that sometimes um, folks that might use a, a tool like a GiveMN, for example, which is um, really helpful off the shelf and ready to go, um, they download information from it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that they ever put information back up into it. And if they aren't putting them into something that's more holistic so we can see what are the offline donations? Because traditionally, the offline donations are larger. People are a little bit more reluctant to process electronic donations of large dollar amounts because you see the amount of fees and you're like, ouch, that kind of hurts. And you know, a, a little fee on a $50 donation doesn't feel like anything at all. But if it's um, a larger one, you know, often you're going to see somebody try to find another way to give. But that means the charities really got to look at how are they – um, getting those offline contributions compared to what's happening in the online one so that those people that are using those cloud-based resources are helping to see the full picture of what's going on. And I think that that's a miss for especially smaller organizations that maybe don't have a lot of data entry um, focus. Right, right. We have Excel. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we download stuff from our online giving, you know, into Excel. Uh, and then, you know, we, somebody types up a list. But without a, a real database thing where it can surface, you know, a report out of all that data, um, you know, to your point earlier about uh, folks that maybe um, had been giving $250 a year and then all of a sudden it stops. Um, that doesn't surface in Excel. You know, that doesn't come up. But a, a, a giving database will go, that person that used to give a lot, I mean, relatively speaking for some charities, is stopped giving. Now, it could be because they're planning to bundle a gift um, and, and that we should know about. Or it could be that they've 
found a different priority for their giving and, you know, but it's also possible that we just lost a relationship somewhere along the way. We just didn't ask at the right time. We missed them and we need to go back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Excel is great for generating the thank you letter or um, the tax deductible receipt or whatever, but it's not great at saying, here's the people that gave last year but didn't give this year and especially at, at people that used to give every year that didn't give. Um, we need the right tools in there and we need the right data from all of those sources in it in order to kind of do the best job. And that's so hard for charities to spend resources on. Right. Yeah, and we, that is one of our most common questions that comes through around kind of what, what are the best CRMs out there and mm -hmm. kind of where should we – what are the pros and cons of each? And I know Idealware produces um, like a mini report every year that does a great comparison analysis of kind of cost and benefit, looking at the most popular CRMs like Salesforce, which can be available to nonprofit organizations under a certain budget size for free, uh, all the way up to kind of the Cadillac of BlackBot and Razor's Edge. So mm -hmm. um, that's a great resource if you're kind of looking to explore what would it look like to either switch or start a, a CRM program? Um, check out Idealware's uh, report. Yeah. And the uh, most recent podcast to this one was uh, with the CEO of TechSoup, uh, Rebecca Messesack, who uh, talked a little bit about their growth plans. As odd as it sounds, some of those do have discounts through TechSoup. So um, you can not have to pay full sticker price. But it is important to recognize that when you need that Cadillac version of things, they're expensive. And it is an investment that you do need to make or potentially you're going to miss that opportunity for a fairly substantial gift. And that's hard for charities to do. And I totally have the, the empathy for that decision. I know that feeling. I've been in that chair. But it's, uh, I think, important, especially as we get to this point of now we've got to add this question in here of are some people maybe making decisions based on a change in tax law that we don't have information about yet, but the data can kind of surface if the tools are right. So I think that's great. It, I'm, we're, we're running a little low on time. I do want to mention or, or ask you a little bit about getting data about these things where some of the decisions are, are being made elsewhere and we don't necessarily see them. So I, um, Facebook is the kind of uh, big example of trying to get into the, the game of giving and uh, asking people to give for their birthday or whatever it might be. Um, but to process sort of through Facebook, in which case if you're not very careful about your data gathering practices, you'll get a nice check from Network for Good with a, a list of you know anonymous donor, anonymous donor, anonymous donor. And it's nice to have the check, but it's more important to have the relationship and I think that that's a real question mark of this whole thing of why are people giving. Some of them, maybe tax deductibility is a question, but some of them, it's a social relationship question of giving. And that's changing a lot with, I'll, I'll say again, Facebook in particular, stepping into that realm and trying to insert itself as an intermediary in the giving process. Right. And so I think that's such a great point on kind of the importance of how fundraising and communications and an intentional social media plan are thinking through your organization's presence and identity on social media is intricately linked now to um, fundraising practices. So kind of it used to be we had potential total or lots of control around how we showed up externally and yeah. as with our public facing image as an organization. And now with social media, there's kind of constant calls to put out an organizational brand and identity out there and in lots of moments that we're not even a part of uh, where people are making decisions about whether they're going to support our work or learning who we are uh, through the lens and experiences of, of people who have interacted with us or work for us. And so I think that's great and 
something to definitely pay attention to. And I know you have a lot of expertise in that area as well. <laughs> I, well, I spend a lot of time thinking about it and I'm, I'm concerned and I want to raise it in this context in particular because I think that there are folks that are maybe planning to make a gift to your charity. They like you. They believe in your work. And then their friend has a birthday and they also like and believe in you and they want to – and like, oh, good. I can make my gift here. And my friend gets a little, you know, um, happy birthday message from me. I've made my gift. All is well with the world, except the charity just looks at that as a donor that's gone away. Um, that somebody who had been supporting your work doesn't give you a contribution as far as you know. You get the anonymous contribution that shows up um, in a check later. But you don't know that that same um, formerly recurring donor is no longer um, showing up. So we've got that real problem of what's that motivating factor again? If it's the, the relationship with their friend and they believe in your mission, how do we get the data so that we know? Um, and that's an ongoing challenge that this tax law change is just going to complicate a little bit more. It's like one more element in there for us all to think about. All right. All that said, we are kind of running low on time. So I want to ask if there are um, um, ideas or advice that you want to share as people move into 2019, um, starting to think forward about um, staying on top of this and what they might want to be doing. Yeah, I think it's a, a good time to remind folks of a return to the basics and kind of there's a lot of ideas and expertise and research out there. And and yet any nonprofit fundraiser who's been doing this work for a long time knows what we've been saying throughout this whole interview, that it, it really is about relationships, uh, your donor's connection to your mission and and the, the work that you do in communities. And so to not kind of forget what those basic tenets of good fundraising are, uh, kind of proactive communication and telling compelling stories of impact that, that tap into um, that donor's kind of connection to your mission. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, the best that we can do unless and until we have, you know, nearly infinite resources to do all the data analysis <laughs> stuff because your data can tell you some things there. And it is, I think, that that question of how much do we invest in that versus the other things that we could be doing to reach people. Because, again, I think we want to close this conversation by saying this is not, in my experience, the primary driver of why people give. And it's a really good um, moment to say what we're seeing early is emphasizing that seems to be true, that even though tax laws have changed, we're not seeing huge, large-scale, easy-to-point-to changes going, oh, yeah, for sure, everybody's um, really pulling back on their charitable giving because of the tax deduction change. Not happening from what we can see now. There'll be better studies as we get further along, more data, um, keeping track of that. So I think great to look at, but really important to say, yes, absolutely send the tax-deductible receipts. Yes, absolutely let people know that it is still tax-deductible for people that are um, doing um, itemized deductions. It absolutely is still there, just that it's probably not the most important thing. So with that message, um, Kari, just quickly how people should stay in touch with the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits. What's the easiest way to keep in touch? Yeah, if you have an interest in fundraising, uh, you probably may know already that we issue a, a newsletter every other week called Grants Alert. So that's an opportunity to feature upcoming grant opportunities as well as emerging trends and news in philanthropy. So if you go to minnesotanonprofits.org, you can subscribe there. Uh, and you can also subscribe to a number of other publications uh, that MCN puts out, like our quarterly newsletter. 
Um, and uh, upcoming fundraising conference is it June, July? I can't remember when that one happens because you do a lot of conferences around here. We do seven of them. Uh, yeah, so our fundraising conference is in July. July. Uh, I think it's July 25th, and that will be at the Earl Brown Heritage Center out in Brooklyn Center. Because I think one of the things that's so helpful about that is um, we don't often, as people that work in fundraising, get to spend um, hours on and talking to many other people who do this for a living. And I think it's great to have that peer conversation to learn from others others about what they're seeing too. So all of those things are great to keep in mind and um, we better better wrap it up. So I just want to say uh, to uh, Kari Anastad, the Director of Advancement for the Minnesota Council of Nonprofits, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Steve. 